again, here we are, episode 118. Murph, we have ah. 118. This is like surviving 118 attempts on our life. We have dodged <laughs> all the bullets. <laughs> nah, our listeners are loyal and they protect us. You guys protect us. So welcome back again. Episode 118, Game of Crimes. Thank you, thank you, thank you guys for joining. I am your host with the most hair. Just got it cut, Morgan Wright, here literally with my partner in crime. Murph, who's almost bald, and your hair looks like crap. My hair doesn't look like crap. It looks like crap. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it, looks, it looks marvelous. I've got so much. She says, the person who cut my hair said, when you come in after six weeks, it's most it's like most people's eight weeks or 10 weeks. So yeah. I get a lot of hair. Hey, when I go in and get a haircut, it takes like three minutes. I'm in and out. There you go. <laughs> you sure that's a haircut? <laughs> <laughs> Be nice now. I'm just starting this. Uh, please, please don't pay attention to him, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. We're trying hey, to get just... some professional help. <laughs> yeah, whatever. All right. How's that working out for you? Okay. Let's just do some quick housekeeping before we get started. Hey, guys, head on over to that Apple Spotify. Hit those five stars. Um, it helps us out a lot. Remember, the other thing we learned that too, guess what, guys? Not only did Stitcher go away, Google Podcasts is going away. So um, you're going to have to, if you're on Google, make sure you pick a new service to keep listening to us. Make sure you hit that subscribe button too so that you do not miss. Deliver to your digital inbox every week on a Monday and Tuesday. These episodes like this one's coming out. Also head on over to our website, gameofcrimespodcast.com. In fact, when we talk about our guest today, Mark Cameron, we'll talk about his book. That'll be listed on there. And we've got a lot of great stuff on there. So make sure you head on over there, Game of Crimes Podcast. Dot com. Also, follow us on that thing they call social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook, and the Instagram. But Murph, I'm telling you, we're going to have some fun on Patreon, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. I have a 911 call coming up for you. <laughs> I, I Of all the 911 calls, I guarantee you nobody, nobody has taken a call like this before that, I, uh, that I'm aware of, ever, anywhere. Um, Looking forward to hearing this one. Holy cow. Oh, there's going to be a couple. This one, I don't know if I can make an entire case out of it, but it is good. I've listened to it and just the sheer, the sheer confusion on the call taker it oh. is, it, it, they've never been presented with this before. So um, <laughs> we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll have to talk about that. But guys, we've also got, uh, we just did our Warden of the Throne. Um, it's a u- unique little thing we're doing now. Rather than just taking one topic, Murph brings two topics. I bring two topics. We're we allowed to get into a, things that um, are catching our interest, you know, for the previous month or some stories. So we just did one talking about uh, Philadelphia and the looting, uh, Iran and the, what they call the Iranian Experts Initiative. Uh, people have had their security clearance suspended. You talk about some tragic cases uh, up in New York, the Bronx, you know, uh, baby dying. Center. Yeah. A daycare center and the recent death of that CEO by a sexual predator who should have still been in prison but wasn't. Right, in Baltimore. So those are a lot of good things. we got Q&A coming up, 911, what's your emergency case of the month? So guys, all good stuff. You don't hear this anywhere else but on patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. But the other place you got to be, though, too, Murph, our favorite mm-hmm. mafia queen with the uh, cool. iron fist with the velvet glove. you got to head on over there. Watch what Sandy Salvato is doing with our Game of Crimes fans page. Just go to Facebook, type in Game of Crimes fans, answer a couple easy questions, get admitted to the Inner Sanctum, and you too will see what goes on behind the scenes, behind the curtains. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain because that's one of our favorite people happening over on Game of Crimes fans. It's it's <laughs> it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of humor there. A lot of dark humor, too. If you saw some of the stuff people have posted— 
<laughs> I hope you guys, I hope your healthcare plan uh, supports you with an employee assistance program. I'm telling you. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <clears throat> I, well, here's what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about now because you know what time it is. So, Jim Murph, you know what time? Guess what? I'm going to ask you, do you know what time it is? Guess what time it is? Come on, give me a, give me a clue. It's time for Small Town Police Blotter. Hey, um, this because in honor of our guest that's coming up, Mark Cameron, the author. We'll talk about him in a second, but he went from Texas, lives in Alaska. So I thought we should have an Alaska theme. There you go. For our Small Town Police Blotter. So Murph, got to ask you. Yes. This comes out of the Alaska Dispatch News. Okay. Um, you know, a lot of, lot of, uh, fishery stuff, a lot of uh, you know crabbing, a lot of uh, lobster stuff, a lot of that goes on in Alaska, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, you know you you take you have an idea. You go, hey, we're going to take a crabbing boat and we're going to convert it into a floating bar and strip club. What could go wrong, right? <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> so, 54-year-old Darren Byler of Kodiak and his 46-year-old wife Kimberly own the Wild Alaskan, a former crabbing boat that's been converted into a floating bar and strip club. Apparently, it's doing pretty well. They've been running the business since June, uh, but now they're in serious legal trouble. And Murphy, it's not for stripping. Uh-oh. What is it? Uh, this gives new meaning to, you know, why this is on a crabbing boat. So, if you're oh, out there, no. <laughs> if you're, well, if you're out there floating... Um, you have to provide facilities for people to use, right? Yeah. So if they use the facilities, number one and number two, you should probably find a way to take care of that other than dumping it into the ocean. Oh, come on. Come on. So they were just indicted by a federal grand jury for improper disposal of human waste <laughs> after, they were, after they were caught dumping feces from their bathroom into the harbor, as they say in Maine, into the oh, harbor. Instead of taking the waste tanks to the proper places on shore, they both could be facing up to one year in jail and $25,000 in fine, but that's not the worst part. Oh, the worst part is the Coast Guard said they lied about dumping the tanks, and if they're convicted of that, making false statements to the Coast Guard investigators, that could get them five years in prison and $250,000 in fines. Cha-ching! I tell, I, I tell you what, you got to do a lot of stripping to make that kind of money. It's a shitty situation they oh, found themselves terrible. in. Yeah, <laughs> it's terrible. Uh, what this whole thing to just get... stinks. It stinks, man. Stinks to high heaven. Tell you what, you know, you had a turd in one hand and wishes in the other. Anyway, we could go lots of places with that. So these these people didn't move to Alaska from Florida, did they? I don't believe so. Thank goodness. Hey, but I went back into the archives too, so I pulled some articles out of the Alaska. Uh, news archives, the Fairbanks Daily News Miner. This comes to us January 21st, 1955, and I'm telling you, the stories are hilarious. Just to, These are quick, quick hits. All right. Uh, and not always, but this is what's in Alaska. This is what's important in Alaska, January of 1955. The Tokyo police hire pretty hostesses. Tokyo police, grieved by complaints that their headquarters is unattractive, have assigned four pretty girls to meet people at the building's two entrances. Officials have also ordered the women to take charm courses. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> that is what's important in the Alaska, you know, the fair. Well, that wouldn't fly today. Well, that'd be daily news minor. No. The other thing you got to do here, be prepared. And this mm-hmm. comes to us, it comes, it's out of Tucson, Arizona, but in the Fairbanks Daily News Minor. This is 1955. A 15-year-old boy with a loaded 38 caliber pistol in his waistband was removed from high school uh, class here by police. His explanation for carrying a gun, a couple of those teachers were giving me a hard time. Well, geez. Okay. <laughs> Okay, but this one though, this one has got to be 
this this is this is it. This is a uh, Saint Boniface. I believe this is Alaska. No, Manitoba. This is Saint Boniface, Manitoba. All right. Uh, police were certain the worst of the winter is upon them. Pete uh, Nico or Nikoluk has started his annual jail term for vagrancy. Nikoluk has spent the past 21 winters in jail on vagrancy charges. Police says he always manages to get arrested just before the coldest part of the winter sets in. Yeah, who says this guy's not smart? <laughs> Three hots in a cot, and I get through the toughest part of winter. Oh my goodness, that's uh, <clears throat> that's well, I've, you know, that's prior planning, I guess. Prior, from prior planning prevents piss poor performance. The there six you P's. Go. Yeah. You ask my children; they'll tell you what the six P's are. That's right, Murph. Now we'll finish up with this. I, I went and looked at what are some of the strangest laws in Alaska, and these are definitely Alaskan. It is illegal to whisper in someone's ear while they are moose hunting. (laughs) Okay. It's legal to shoot bears. However, it is illegal to wake a sleeping bear for the purpose of taking a photograph. Why would you wake a sleeping bear? Isn't that the truth? (laughs) Here's another thing, and I don't get it. It is considered an offense. It's illegal to feed alcoholic beverages to a moose. Well, I'm... Why? Uh, apparently, it's also illegal to sell stun guns to children. That one, I kind of get that makes sense. Um, well, if you're in uh, Fairbanks, Alaska, if you love a Vuvuzula, remember what they did during the World Cup? You know, you blow those those things that make a lot of noise. Those annoying it's, things? Yeah, it's illegal to blow a horn in a manner that disrupts the peace. Good. Yep. So, it's illegal to fatten up a sheep, cow, or pig within the city limits of Fairbanks. Are we talking about people or animals? Uh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> well, maybe it's meatball, and you'll have to listen to our. Oh. Uh, you'll have to listen to our warden of the throne. All right. Um, it is also a crime to speak so loud that you offend a sensitive person enough to make him, her, or her leave if you're in Fairbanks. What? Okay. Well, hey, be uh, nice. That's just be nice. And you can only carry a concealed slingshot if you have received the appropriate license. <laughs> the lisons. Do you have a lisons for that slingshot? All right. Oh, okay. I didn't know you had to have that. But, uh, but Murph, this is the craziest one. This reminds me of an episode of uh, you and JP on Narcos uh, where you were accused of doing this. Not a moose, but it is an offense to push a live moose out of a moving airplane. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I got to agree with that. But have you seen how big a moose is? How do you push it anywhere? Well, how do you get it into the damn airplane to begin <laughs> with is what I want to know. And who wants a moose, a pissed off moose in their airplane? <sighs> Uniquely Alaskan. So Mark Cameron, as we get into this, and again, we want to thank our buddy Patrick O'Donnell, Cops and Writers. Go listen to his podcast. Uh, Hooked us up with him, but Mark Cameron is an interesting dude. Moved from Weatherford, Texas Mm -hmm. to Alaska, and we're going to talk about his book that was just released. It's an Arliss Cutter novel, Breakneck, uh, by Mark Cameron. But the interesting thing, too, Murph, was he wrote the last seven Tom Clancy novels, and this is a guy that used to be a marshal. Which most of their reports were saw bad guy put him in jail. You know, yeah. what not extensive reports in the marshal service. Saw fugitive, arrested, same. JD yeah, Buck Savage will have on there. I tell you, when when uh, uh, Patrick told us about this guy, you know, when, and we we do our own little research and vet him. But Patrick's uh, if he gets if he approves them, if he vets them and approves them, that's pretty much good for us because he's does don't a fantastic need anymore, job. Yeah. But but looking at Mark's background. And seeing, I'm a, I was a Tom Clancy fan back when Tom Clancy was still writing the books. And to see that 
he had picked that up and and he's going to tell you how that all happened and what's going on with that. But then to see how he's blossomed into other things, he's got two other series that are just phenomenal. Uh, and and I think the way I'm reason I'm gushing on this a little bit is because I love to see what law enforcement professionals do after they retire from law enforcement. And he's even though he's retired, he's not locking people up anymore. He still supports law enforcement in Alaska, and, and you'll hear him talk about that a little bit as well. So just have the most utmost respect for him. Uh, I don't have the writing skills to write a book. I don't think I tried writing our book one time and and uh, wrote for six hours, waited two days, read it, and thought, what a bunch of crap. Because <laughs> it read like, an, uh, read like a cable. You know? It read like a primer for elementary kids. It was just, it was terrible. So, well, you can find him at Mark M A R C, Mark Cameron C A M E R O N, MarkCameronBooks.com. But Murph, here's the other thing too. I don't know if you look through the back of the book. The other thing he provides too is he's got a couple recipes in there: Grumpy's dessert beans, a savory dish. But when Ethan and Arliss were young, they craved them like a dessert. So he gives you recipes by his character, and Ritz cracker fried halibut. Well, there you go. Hey, see, this, this is an educational program we have here. You know why he wrote the book? Just for the hell of it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And we can't even edit that out. <laughs> that was actually funny. <laughs> hey, but, well, it's speaking of funny, but, hey, but look, again, um, this is great stuff. He's, he, he, was, he was a writer all of his life. He finally is able now to spend full time doing his passion. But he has got some funny stories that we talk about. And if you want to know something that's really Alaskan, wait till you hear a couple of these stories. But, Murph, we will never hear them unless I ask you. Are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous, and if you're in Alaska, coldest, and watch out for moose, game of all, game of crimes? Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, get in, sit down, shut up, hold on. You're going to hear about some adventures here that you're probably not expecting. So bring on Mr. Mark Cameron. So I've learned not to use Spanish or any other foreign languages because that seems to trigger the uh, ads. So we're just going to stick to English for this one or say maybe Russian this time. Yeah? Okay. Oh, now you're going to get Russian. So, hey, guys, welcome. We got a, we got a, another special guest. This one is special in a variety of ways. First of all, he comes from us, former U.S. Marshal. But the dude is turned into an author extraordinaire. And we're going to talk to that. We're going to talk about what he's done. So first of all, his nom de guerre, his pen name, we welcome him as Mark Cameron. Welcome to Game of Crimes podcast, Deputy Marshal. Thank you for having me. Appreciate he didn't even know how to respond to that. You, you left him speechless. <laughs> well, as long he doesn't have to worry about speaking because he writes, and he writes really well. So hey, Mark, first of all, welcome. Um this is fun, too, because right before we got started, we are talking about mutual friend. We have Ryan Stack and talking about a lot of the work that you guys have all done in the thriller space. And uh, it's interesting, though. We're, we're going to get into this, but Ryan, Ryan said, hey, make sure you bring this up because I read it on his website. You had the distinction of writing how many Tom Clancy novels? Seven? Seven. Seven or yeah, eight? Yeah, I did. Seven? I just turned in the seventh, which will be my last one. I've asked him to find somebody else. That's a lot of, brand, a lot of bandwidth for an old dude like <laughs> well, me. So that's interesting. So they got a couple of guys who write uh, novels together as a team to take over for you. But you've got – look, I got to tell you, I started off on Tom Clancy. I I was one of the original people that read Hunt for Red October, published by the Naval Press. And I was in an airport one day, and I picked it up, and I read it. You know, So the fact that you got to l- – 
you know, right in that legacy, man. That is a badge of honor, especially as we were talking for a U.S. Marshal whose reports barely used to be a paragraph when you were booking people into jail, right? No, I, yeah, I, I start. I read. I was in the police academy in Texas in 1984 when the Hunt for Red October came out, and I wanted to be a writer from the time I was a little boy. And in fact, I told my wife before we got married when I was courting her that I was going to be a novelist and a theater professor at a college and she decided yeah i want to do that and then right like six weeks before we got married i sprung it on her that i really want to be a cop and a novelist and she married me anyway but so i got a job at a little police department and during that first year i was a police officer i read the hunt for red october so when the when the offer came up to write for the clancy's uh, estate I I just I nearly had an aneurysm. It was it was uh, out of the blue. Had no idea it was coming. But I've been a Clancy fan since Clancy published his first book. You know, and it's amazing too because um, he almost didn't get it published. I think he went to twenty five places, and it took the Naval Press to publish Hunt for Red October. And then here's an insurance salesman. He did his research. One thing that was so good about it, he did his research. But let's go back to you, talking about you growing up in this thing of ours. How did, so well, what made you decide? Go just ahead. Just before you start that, we've, we've got to give a shout out to the person who introduced us oh, to Mark, okay. And that's Patrick O'Donnell, who is a former guest on Game of Crimes, but uh, also has his own uh, podcast, Cops and Writers. So, Patrick, and this is this is not the first person you've recommended for us, and we expect this to be a home run just like all the others. No pressure, Mark. But uh, oh, thank yeah, you, brother. Yeah, yeah. Well, Patrick's a good dude. Absolutely. Patrick is a good guy. Very good guy. Well, and and, th- and Patrick, I will never mis- mispronounce you again. I I introduced him accidentally as Patrick O'Connell one time. I said, we're just going to change your name. But <laughs> his mother's going to kick my ass, so it's Patrick O'Donnell. He's going to send Peaky Blinders over here to take <laughs> you out. Peaky Blinders. <laughs> <laughs> we through the Peaky Blinders. Um, well, hey, so which, which part of Texas did you grow up in? little town called Weatherford, just out of Fort Worth. Um, you know, it's one of those towns that's got a lot of history. If you've ever seen the show Lonesome Dove, you ever watch that show? Yeah. Uh, oh, Robert Duvall. Martry, my so. wife loves that. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. Well, I was a mounted policeman with Weatherford for a number of years, and I was riding horses while that was on. And, of course, that was back during the days when you couldn't TiVo anything or stream it. So we would like work our schedule around because to us, Lonesome Dove was a training video. So we would be home watching Lonesome Dove. And But Weatherford has the dis- Parker County. If you remember in Lonesome Dove, Woodrow Call brings um, Gus McCray back and buries his body underneath. I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but buries his body and, you know, hauls him all the way across, down from Montana, all the way back down to. Uh, in the show San Antonio, but that's based on a, a historical event, the Goodnight Loving Trail. And Charles Goodnight brought Oliver Loving's body after he had had to have his arm cut off, got blood poisoning, and all that from an Indian attack. Um, brought his body back to Parker County and buried him under a little pecan tree in a little little. Uh, cemetery there so a lot of a lot of history a lot of history well robert duvall lives not too far from me out here in northern virginia loudon county we actually ran into him at fireworks pizza in leesburg giving those guys a shout out uh i had a unique connection not anything from me but my grandfather was an old-timer lived in colorado well they were getting extras 
for the movie True Grit with John Wayne. He is one of the old timers sitting in the chair in Uray, Colorado, rocking back and forth when Ned Pepper, Robert Duvall, rides into town. So he's got his 15 seconds of fame on the screen. You can see him as one of the old timers there. And uh, we ran into him over here. That is also a training video. In fact, every we'd go to the mall and show that little scene, the you know, the big you know, I call that bold talk for one-eyed fat man scene. And uh, every time there'd be all the noise going on in the mall and the marshal services recruiting and all that. And all these kids would be walking by and covering up everything until John Wayne says, fill your hand, you son of a bitch. And then everything would get quiet and all the ladies would look at me. And, yeah. <laughs> and then he puts those brains between his teeth and gets that repeating rifle. And yeah, yep, oh, one of the exactly. great... Uh, Oh, man. Oh, I'm already getting goosebumps. This is going to be fun. All right. So uh, actually, a good friend of mine, too, uh, just retired as the chief of police there in Grand Prairie. But I used to come down to – he used to ride the bulls and uh, did the bear bro- bareback bronc riding at the uh, 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 there in Fort Worth in the stockyards oh, back yeah. in the day. Yeah. That's where he met his wife. Yeah. So um, why did country. you start – so you started off uh, mounted patrol. Did you have the big white Stetson, too? Black. Black. Oh, that had to get hot during the summer. Yeah, we wore, well, we wore straw hats in the summer, but I started on patrol, started as a regular patrol officer, and there was a detective for a number of years, and then uh, the mounted patrol came up, and I I wasn't a very good rider. I enjoy riding, but I was a horseshoer, and the city saw that they could get their horses shod cheap if they had one of their guys (laughs) do it, so uh, (laughs) they let me on the patrol because I could shoe their horses. Now, did you grow up on a ranch in Texas? Is that how you knew how to do that? No, I just enjoy. I we had like ten acres, and you know, I I did. I really didn't start cowboy until I was older. Till I was like in my early twenties, had friends, and I just enjoyed that and kind of learned as I went along. It's like they say on the show Yellowstone: everybody wants to be a cowboy till it's time to do cowboy shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hardest hardest work I've ever done was horseshoe, and I and and the strongest I've ever been. You don't stand statically with a nine hundred pound animal leaning on you for you know hours at a time when not get is is getting paid to go to the gym. <laughs> now, that's for did sure. You, did you get bit a couple times or get kicked? Oh, I got yeah, I got kicked. Got some nails driven. All, always for stupid stuff I've done. But I've got I got plenty of scars. <laughs> I just but I just love those those horses, man. What's such, they're such great animals. My dad, uh, uh, before he passed away, we all went out and visited out in Gunnison, Colorado. The thing he used to have a horse out there, Boulder Jack. My sister ended up with him, and just the horse. It's just so much fun watching those folks do that, and especially Texas. But around, you know, Steve, you, Steve, you were telling me one time you're talking to a guy from Texas. Unless it's like ten thousand acres, it's not a ranch in Texas. <laughs> Yeah, we were we were down in Victoria, Texas. My old DEA partner Javier Pena and I speaking to a group, and and uh, you know, part of it is we show the the famous ranch that Pablo Escobar had down in Colombia, Finca Napoles. And I made the statement. I said, you know, we've heard it's anywhere from a thousand to ten thousand acres. What it doesn't matter to us because that's huge. And so when we finished talking, the sheriff came up to thank us for coming. He said, and and Murph, I guess just got to tell you, you mentioned that uh, a ranch between a thousand, 10,000 acres is huge. Well, here in Texas, we call that a ranchette. <laughs> 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 I don't know how many acres he owned, but apparently a whole lot more. That, that is absolutely true. The, pro, the, the flip side of that is on some of those places down near Victoria and, you know, South Texas and then in West Texas, it takes 
a hundred acres to run one cow calf pair. So you need that to run, you need 10,000 acres to run a hundred cattle. So it just takes a lot to support some cows. And cowboying's become fashionable now with Yellowstone and stuff like that. So, and then one of the characters out of Yellowstone ended up going down. What was it? The, forgot the name of the ranch. It's like the triple eight or whatever else he's doing cowboying. Four, six, four, six. Yeah. Four sixes. Doing some cowboying down there in Texas of season five of Yellowstone. Yeah, Jimmy, Jimmy went down there. Season five is coming out, so I think end of the month. So yeah. we'll have to do about this. So, so, so how big of a how big how big was your department? How many people on your department? How big was your town when you were doing this? Small, like 40, uh, 40 people altogether. It was very small, very small. Weatherford, it's grown now. It's a much bigger department now. But when I started, there was. You know, three people on midnight, three officers on midnight shift, some deputy sheriffs on midnight shift, and the and the troopers. And there was that hierarchy, you know, the the county mounties and the city kiddies and the highway <laughs> patrol. And but I, I was a I was a young kid. I was barely old enough to buy my own bullets when I got on. Barely twenty one oh, years old. Herb couldn't uh, even buy bullets when he got on. I started at nineteen. I couldn't buy a gun or bullets, but I could shoot your ass. <laughs> Wowzer. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Yeah, exactly. Well, it was a different time. I think you started. You and I started close to the same time. I started in '84. Yeah, You're a little started, ahead of me. I started in '82, uh, and he started in what? A, I started in '82, and you started in what? Seventeen, right after 1776, wasn't it? You 1883. Got it? That's in fact, that's the first episode <laughs> of the the Yellowstone series. Yeah, you see Murph in the background with Tim McGraw. Hey, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a city marshal here. Uh, I have my repeating rifle out there. I can fly that thing around. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It, it, my son always—he's was APD. He's State Department now, but uh, he was Anchorage Police Department. And he would joke that you know he'd see my pictures of me with my six eighty six revolver and some speed loaders, and you know they're carrying Glock twenty twos and just a oh, different yeah. world. Just a completely uh, so different even, world. Even with I'd been a cop for twelve years before I went to DEA, and and even when I went through the DEA Academy in nineteen eighty seven. They were still issuing the Smith and Wesson Model Ten revolvers. <laughs> like, damn! Even we've got better guns. Yeah, yeah. We I went through the Marshalls in '91. Yeah. I went through the Marshalls in '91, and we got GP100 wow. Rugers. <laughs> they were like great gun, but as soon as everybody went home, they got a semi-auto. Except for me, I got a 44 Special because I thought I was cool. Yeah, you'd watch True Grit too many times. Yeah, that was my first. Uh, I started off on a city department, but that's when right. I went to the state patrol, that's what we had: Smith and Wesson six eighty sixes. Those were, I mean, I love that thing. Um, nice, solid weapons. Gun. Yeah, excellent gun. Oh yeah, it was like a combination revolver and big steel <laughs> pipe. You could whack people with. <laughs> that got they got unruly, that, right? But, uh, well, yes. well, hey, <laughs> You know, saves on bullets. You know, bullets are expensive. <laughs> only bad guys. Only it's like only only bad guys. It it, it was uh, what was that? Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger says in True Lies. He says yes, but they were all bad. That's I. I it just was a different time. Yeah, just I, I just I just saw that bridge too. Uh, we were just down in the Keys for vacation, and um, you know the highway that they blew up for True Lies is down there. Anyway, I digress. But so, but you were, but you were on the PD. So, what made you? Um, but during this time, you said you wanted to be a novelist. What started that? Was it just from reading? Did you like to read a lot back then, or how did this idea of being a novelist? And then, obviously, you got out of the theater because you came came a cop. But how did the idea of novelist uh, creep into your psyche back as a youth like that? <laughs> 
So I started writing stories and books when I was about eight. So I've got piles and piles and piles. My mom has piles and piles of spiral notebooks and steno pads and whatever scraps of paper I could write. And, you know, I try to keep those under wraps. I don't want those ever getting out. But um, when I, when we, first got married we that, that little department i started at we i, I was making six dollars and 67 cents an hour and we had to buy our own gun we bought our own leather and back in you guys remember in 19 the early 80s they didn't buy you most departments wouldn't buy you a ballistic vest and you know and dupont kevlar was relatively new and and rigid um, so that first year because my wife knew that i had th- this dream yeah this this uh my wife knew that I had these dreams of being an officer and, uh, you know, a police officer and also being a writer. And the first year on a meager, meager salary, somehow she scraped together enough money to buy me an American body armor ballistic vest, that kind with the yep. armadillo on it with a bullet ricocheting off his back. And there was no, there was no cover. It was just the vest. And when you need to wash it, you had to like hold it underwater. And, and, and in Texas, well, they could get pretty ripe. But so she bought me a, an American body armor vest and a Smith Corona electric typewriter that very first year. And I'd been writing most stuff longhand or on an old typewriter I got from my parents, a manual one. And I wrote stories and got rejection letters for years. And I remember I sold a, a short story and my, and I, you know, sent, like, like Hemingway would send his stuff off, drink all, you know, and drink all day and then get a rejection letter and then just, go to sleep weeping. And then the next day he'd send something off and do it again, do it again. Well, I didn't drink all day and go to bed weeping. I had a job to do, but I kept writing, kept getting rid. And I got a lot of rejection letters. And finally, um, I was with the marshal service and I came home one day and my wife had a rolled up newspaper or magazine in her hand and um, a check for like 700 bucks. And she said, this is where, you know, again, we're like 23 years in of just rejection letters. And she still, that was my hobby, just writing. And she swatted me on the butt with that magazine. And she said, this is working out. Now go write us a new couch. <laughs> and you so gotta love it. I just, I just kept at it. Go write us a new couch. God. Well, um, so I, I was writing when I was with the police department, all the time, just never yeah. getting posted. Well, I, I, guess, I, guess, I guess what I'm doing right now, because Mama wants a new car, we're our speaking business. I guess we're speaking for a new car. <laughs> That's it. I like it. Hey, That's it. I'm going to ask you, when you had to write an offense report, did you have a sergeant or somebody come up and says, okay, Mark, just knock this shit off. Just give me a simple report. I don't need a novel. Were you writing novels for uh, your narratives? No, I think I, I, think I, uh, I have the... I think I can figure out how to do it a little differently than that. I did have one. Remember when we carried the old PR-24s? Yep. And I was a PR-24 instructor, the side handle baton. And back when I first started and on into the beginning of the Marshal Service, we had to write three-part triplicate you know, reports. And we wrote them like you guys. I, mean, I think everybody did back then, except for the really big departments. We printed them on these three-part mm-hmm with carbon paper in the middle and all that. And so the problem with that is they can't just line correct 20, you know, change this or change that. You have to rewrite the whole thing or white out each individual page or whatever the offense report. And I, I remember I had my 
you couldn't really sit down very well with a PR24 in that scat, that little ring. So I would take it out, set it on the, you know, on the squad room table and I had it sitting there and I was writing my report out and the sergeant didn't even read it. He just came by and I was almost finished with this full page narrative. And he came by and picked up my PR24 like a hammer and just went all over the top of it. So it looked like a Dalmatian dog all over the thing. And I, I said, what did you do that for? And Sarge and he said, "Well, I knew it'd be bad. Just start over. It'd be bad." So, I had good uh, trainers. I had Morgan, really good you trainers. have a description for the PR twenty four, don't you? I do too, man. We, uh, well, I, I learned this from some guys in LAPD. So, why do they have the side handle on the PR twenty four? So, when the bad guy takes it from you and shoves it up your ass, it only goes about six inches. <laughs> yeah, I. I but on foam. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and then they were giving us, then they went to polycarbonate once. It's like, what's, you know, we got to be smaller and lighter. It's like we had a guy one night at a truck stop, just had that, you know, that thousand yard stare. You knew it was going to be a problem. And we didn't, we found out later, we didn't know, thank God, at the time, this guy was former Special Forces Green Beret. He could have probably killed both of us with just his pinky finger. And I remember he went to take a fighting stance. And I, so, you know, I, I struck him with the baton on the side of the arm. He didn't flinch, and my baton went flying away about 10 feet, you know, 15, 20 feet or whatever. And he looked at me and he says, you know, this could go really bad, but I'm just going to let you arrest me. And we went, oh, I wasn't Catholic, but I said, oh, thank God, you know, because this guy had yeah. that look, you know. Yep, I think everybody – you know, and there were times when they were they were great. But I had the, a similar experience where I had a guy had two other officers down. One was laying across – and it was just a fight. It wasn't it – was tr- wasn't – planning on killing them but they were one was on all fours just kind of falling over and the other one was fall had had kind of landed splayed out on a um, picnic table in the park so i arrived pulled out the pr24 snuck up behind him and the guy was he was he was kind of leaning on his hands and knees kind of <sighs> with his hands on his knees and i snuck up behind him and gave him a what seemed to me to be the perfect power strength swing you know where you use the side handle and you smack it in there and instructors could quote how many foot, you know, how many foot pounds were per square inch, whatever. And it hit him right in the common yep. peroneal, you know, where you give a dead leg. And he turned around and looked at me and said, what do you want? <laughs> and I thought, okay, we're going to guns because this guy's way bigger. Oh. And, and he's already knocked two officers out. And then he gave up like you, you know, this could, we could fight all night. But one of the things I noticed is that when I look back at my career, where I worked, kind of in the edge of the oil patch there in cowboy country, everybody fought, uh-huh. but very few people wanted to take it any farther. You know, if your gun fell out, they'd kick it out of the way and, com- you know, continue to. There were some really bad guys, but it seemed like everybody had to be bloodied before they would go to jail. It was just a different mentality from that side of the, you know, it was just, it was interesting. When I was a, a city of officer and a state trooper, I was out in Southwest Kansas and we had a lot of farm boys, you know, they'd come in, they'd, they'd Thursday night, Friday night, want to go drinking and stuff. And it was kind of one of those things you get called to a bar fight and it's kind of like, I'm not running lights and sirens. We just slow down. We get there. By the time we get there, we don't see anything. It's like, okay, you guys just go home or, you know, have a beer. And that was it. Most of the time, the only time you took somebody to jail is when they didn't get the message. Like you need to go now. And they'd go, well, fuck you. Yeah, I'm not leaving. Well, you, you are now, you know, so 
Hey, but what I was going to ask you, how long were you on the city before yeah. you went to the marshals and why did you pick the marshals? Did you, did you think about going to another federal agency? What was the, what was the impetus to say, uh, go from Weatherford to now the U.S. marshals or did, was there a stop in between? No, I went, I, it took about two and a half years, but I'd wanted to be a deputy since I was quite young and, um, I was in high school and I, I actually was good friends with a son of a deputy marshal, but I didn't really know his dad was a deputy. He was always off doing stuff and, um, you know, arresting bad guys around. He worked out of the Fort Worth office and Weatherford's about 35, 40 minutes west of Fort Worth. And, uh, but I remember being about 15, 14 or 15 years old and Weatherford's one of those old Parker County is one of those old places with the courthouse square and the big green courthouse green. So, you know, kind of a traffic circle around and then a big green around it and then parking meters all around. And I remember crossing from one of the little stores to a cafe there. So this would have been like back in 1976, 75 or 76. And this pickup pulled up in front of one of the parking meters and this tall, lanky dude got out with a nice Stetson and he had a starch shirt and starch jeans and his you know, no jacket, just a gun with a big old silver star badge. And he took a, a canvas bag with a metal collar on it and he put it over the parking meter and locked it up. And it said official business, U.S. Marshal. So we didn't have to pay the dime, right? <laughs> and I thought right then when I was 14, I want one of those bags. I want me one of those bags someday. So I'm going to have to be a deputy marshal. And then as I grew up and, you know, I mean, watched true grit and you know the mark the old west marshall of course that's where i grew up is that you know part of the world so marshals were they were cool people not i I didn't really know what they did then once i got with the department and i saw and not to speak ill of any other agency but there are there is an agency that will really want to have you know they really want to be there when you make the arrest it's there's a lot of you know, just as a bureaucracy, it, they were great guys, men and women to work with. But when the marshals called and said, hey, we need help arresting this guy, if you see him, get him. There was no, it, it was more about the outcome, more about getting the bad guy in jail. Every time we worked with the marshals, it was a pleasure. And they would swoop in. I mean, to us, it was like they came down off Mount Olympus and... And dealt with us. We all know who you're talking. We all know who you're talking. Yeah, let's don't mention the. I just really let's don't mention the FBI here. (laughs) (laughs) And I've got lots of friends with the bureau. I really do. But the marshals were just. They were just, and the work was fun. I mean, I knew going in that there was going to be a lot of sitting in court. I knew there was going to be transporting prisoners and all that. But I'm the kind of guy that likes a little thinking time because I'm a writer. So sitting in court or taking a long, you know, hamburger marshal prisoner trip is not a bad thing for me because I get to do the the quote unquote sexy stuff with with fugitive work. And so when the time came and you, you guys remember, I'm sure you do, we would before the Internet, we would all order our pamphlets from whatever agency. And I got them from everybody. I even got them from the North Slope borough of the of alaska because i thought well i'm gonna go up and be an alaska state trooper because i want adventure but alaska wouldn't hire anybody unless you lived here for a year and had residency so i was going to go up and work the very top of alaska that 
North Slope. So I get pamphlets from them, pamphlets from the DEA, pamphlets from the ATF and the marshals. And we would pull up at night on night shift, pull up, you know, door to door so we could pass pamphlets back and forth. And, hey, what have you got? Have you filled out an application for these guys? Have you, what are you hearing back from the Border Patrol? And um, it was a small department. We got paid, you know, we progressed and we're making decent, decent livings. But uh, I would say probably maybe a quarter of the people that worked with me went to other agencies, the Bureau, the Border Patrol, the Marshal Service, U.S. Customs. DA wouldn't have any of us, dang it. Did anybody go to the Kansas Highway Patrol? <laughs> no, no. no. But I did have a Kansas Highway Patrol officer come work for me in, in Alaska cool. in the Marshal Service. He came from and them to I me. If I remember, I think I know who you're talking about. That wasn't one of the two that was killed in the plane accident, was he? No. No, this one came to work. This uh, guy's name's Ryan Filson. He came up here from. He was, I think he was he was Kansas High Patrol and worked with uh, DHS, uh, Health and Human Services. Maybe he was an OIG investigator, and then came. I recruited him to come work for us. Good guy. Well, great guy. Merce just jealous because uh, one of the guys that uh, quote caught El Chapo the first time. He couldn't get on the Kansas Highway Patrol, but he got on DEA. So um, we did have standards. Apparently, uh, DEA did. But uh, hey, we have standards. They might be a little they're, low. They're very but we low. have standards. Hey, but Mark, you brought up a really good point though too. And it, it was always my experience working with the marshals on cases, or even the bureau and other guys. We always got along at the field agent level. You know, at the agent level, most people wanted to do stuff. It's when you got into the. Yeah. The, the 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 politics you know the, the supervisory level people worried about well who's going to put out the press release and, and guys that guys that were like you right me out there feet on the street that just wanted to go make the arrest nobody gave a shit we're like mm-hmm. I don't care who puts out the press release we all wanted to go have a yeah. beer afterwards yeah oh yeah that's the and especially in places that are far flung Alaska is you know it's like this with families if your in laws and outlaws don't live up here then neighbors get together for Thanksgiving and in the law enforcement, it's kind of the same way because there's no one else to call. We're, you know, thousand miles away from Seattle. So you don't call another SWAT team. If, if you need FBI HRT, you know, we'll see you tomorrow kind of a thing. And so everybody has to handle it. So my youngest son was on the SWAT team here in Anchorage for a number of years. And uh, they just had to handle stuff themselves because there that was where the buck stopped if if the and you guys know that standoffs and hostage situations and things like that things like that they don't last long enough to get help from oftentimes from a neighboring big city in the lower 48 so um troopers anchorage police marshals fbi dea everybody really worked um very closely together one of my one of my uh, really good friends in the in federal law enforcement system is a is a DEA. He's a retired DEA agent. We work closely together as well. In fact, he's helped me. I, don't, I won't name him, but um, he uh, he's helped me quite a bit on some of the Clancy's. the The very first Clancy that I and I know we'll get into this in a minute, but since we're talking to other agencies and DEA, he's, he had heard through the grapevine at one of the Northern Knives that we all. It's a knife shop here in town that we all frequent and. This guy came in and he goes, Hey, I heard you're doing one of the, one of the, the, you're writing the next Tom Clancy. And I said, I am. And he goes, well, remember that show? Remember that uh, book without remorse and how he, how John Clark put the guy in the uh, decoach, the decompression chamber. He goes, 
I was at the place where we burn up all our, uh, you know, the narcotics, the incinerator, and it's got this conveyor belt. I was thinking that would be a cool place for John Clark. And uh, I said, let's go. And so we went to this field trip to the, to the incinerator. And if you read Power and Empire, it's, it's got two dedicated chapters to Very that incinerator because cool. of my DEA friend and his... Yep. His imagination. Hey, you were talking to, I had a chance at one of the International Association of Chiefs of Police Conference, IACP, um, to meet the commissioner of the Alaska State Troopers. And so we had a couple good chats and stuff because it was funny. Some guys from Kansas went up there. Some other folks went up there because it became very popular. Remember, Nat Geo did, you know, Alaska State Troopers, you know, be on TV. People thought, oh, that's pretty cool. Except you get people up there and they realize, hey, yeah, you want to be in Anchorage or one of those, that's fine, but you got to go be a resident trooper. You got to be in one of these small little villages with the VSPO, the village, uh, VPSO, Village Public Safety. Yeah, you got to be way up there for like two years or three years before you can come back to civilization. And it was a culture shock. Yeah, Yeah, it was a culture shock for many of these guys who were used to having a Starbucks on the corner. Yeah. Oh yeah, who was the commissioner? I just got to think of his name. He had dark, remember his name? Had dark the hair and a mustache and glasses. I'm trying to think of his name. Um, it's was yeah, it a it's, long time ago? It's probably ago been or about like uh, six, seven years ago, maybe eight years ago. Um, it, Joe Masters. That sounds Joe Masters? familiar. I, I'd have to. Go, I'd have to see the picture. Maybe. Um, but yeah, but he had like a dark mustache. And, yeah. No. Though no, they're um, yeah, yeah kind yep. of stocky. Good. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's a good guy. He's a friend of mine as well. Yeah, um, everybody's pretty close up here. But work in the bush, we call it. We call it places you can't get to except by plane, boat, or birth canal. <laughs> the bush. So if you have to work out in one of these villages, I love the villages. I just love the rural aspect of it. I love the the cultures and the people. And there's a lot of crime out there, as there is any place that's cut off. I mean, you people sometimes blame the the crime on on culture or or even mistakenly race because it's 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 uh, predominantly uh, Alaska natives, um, but the same issues are in Appalachia or or any place where there's poverty and and isolation, and so um, those bush troopers and and they're predominantly newer in their career, younger young men and women and. My hat is off to them. They're just doing the Lord's work out there. They, they um, and you can really tell the the places where they're working and working hard. The the people that the community just really gets behind them and loves them. And and uh, it's I I just came back from one, so it's very it's they're neat places to go and very old style law enforcement. It's that one riot, one ranger because ain't nobody coming to help you. And and these are the kind of places where you know, village health aides who basically have the EMT level might have to get on a sat link with a doctor and do some operation on the cafeteria table because there's nobody coming to help. So you have either that person's going to die or we're going to cut him open with this sharpened knife because it's too, it's too icy to get in on the river. You know, it's, it's, Frozen, half frozen, half melted, so you can't take a boat, and it's too cloudy to get a plane. Which means, wow, there's nobody coming for well, sometimes I mean, if you days. Spit on the knife and rather, which I love. I drive it under your armpit. <laughs> that that's sanitary, right? Yeah. And, and folks, you're going to notice 
you're going to yeah, notice yeah, we yeah. have just a little bit of a lag. One of the reasons is I'm in Virginia, Merce in Florida. And where are you at, Mer- Mark? It takes a while for the internet to get there. Where are you at? I'm in Anchorage, Alaska. Yeah, like I said, we use two tin cans in a string. <laughs> takes a takes a string. That rep- <laughs> so we apologize. There's like we may step on each other because there's like just a little bit of a lag, but we'll try and do our best. Um, but let's let's kind of circle back now because I want to move us forward through your career, getting into Marshalls. Talk about a couple things you did, and then get into the writing. Um, but you said it took you two and a half years to get on the Marshalls. Yes. Yeah. It was a. It was a time when they were. Well, even now, it's really hard to get on the marshals. It's just the the hiring process is kind of convoluted, and maybe just with all the federal agencies. But uh, I, you, we took a test, and then you waited to hear by mail for a couple of months to hear what your test. Well, first you had to send a little blue sheet of paper saying I want to take a test, and then you heard by mail a couple of months later when your test uh, date was. And then I drove over to. Fort Worth or Dallas and, and took the test, which at that time was the treasury enforcement agents exam. Uh, so there was algebra on it, which is my kryptonite. So you had, you know, memory, you know, look at the picture of the American flag and the people and walking. And then you took a math test and then came back and they asked you a bunch of questions about that picture of the post office and which way the flag was blowing and all that. So, um, took that test two months later, Two or three months later, you got back the results of the test. And uh, then they said, okay, you're on a list. And then about a year later, you got a letter in the mail saying, we want to bring you in for an interview. And then, and by the way, if you don't get this job off this interview, it'll expire and you have to start over again. And so I thought I had really given up because I had an interview. It seemed very positive. And then I, I pretty much gave up after almost two years and started sort of reassessing what I was going to do. And I'd applied with some other places too. Uh, that's that's when I applied with the North Slope Borough up here, uh, which is the top quarter of Alaska as one giant municipality. And I had a, um, and then I got a call that, hey, we got, we had a young lady break her leg at, at Fletzy at, at Federal Law Enforcement Training Academy. Would you uh, be ready to go next Monday? And I said, absolutely, I'll be ready to go. And so I told my wife, I think we're going. And then, uh, I got a call and said, oh, sorry, her leg's not broken. It's just sprained. We're good to go. Oh, don't don't call us. We'll call you. And then I waited about another eight months. And um, but I, but it was it was after that I should have expired. You know, my application should have expired. But because they had kind of hired me and then kind of let me go, I guess they felt sorry for me because um, I was out working on a barn, the horse barn and my, you know, mounted police stuff. And my wife came and we had been, my wife knew a lady with the marshal service, uh, HR named Mary Cassidy, who would, she's the one we would call say any status, you know, what's going on. And my wife would call her like once every two months. And so Mary like recognized my wife's voice on the phone and sorry, it's not going on. So my wife came screaming up. We had three little kids at the time and she came screaming up in the truck and slid to a stop and, uh, jumped out. Mary Cassidy called, you're starting. And so I like dropped my welding hat and headed to the truck and gave him two weeks notice and moved to Sherman, Texas for, well, I started in Dallas to process in, went to, we affectionately call it Fleetech, a federal law enforcement training center. 
And then uh, my first office was in Sherman um, for the Eastern District of Texas, but really north of Dallas. So, how far from how far is Weatherford from Sherman? I mean, was it a big move for you, or just like what a couple hours? Yeah, about four hours, maybe. Um, yeah, and my wife actually. So we had two kids, but she was pregnant when I went to uh, Glencoe to the train to the Marshalls Academy, and I was out on a out on a uh, fun run. They call it those voluntary mandatory evening you know, 10 K's that they would do. And so we're running through the Georgia woods and this, uh, golf cart and, uh, one of the armored limos that we used for training. We're on a, uh, you know, cadence run and it pulled up beside me and said, fall out and you're having a baby. And so I got in and I drove, you know, they drove me back to building 20 and, um, let me talk to my wife. And she had had our son, our youngest son that day, the one that's now a police officer. And, uh, then I talked to her for about five minutes and they said, so you're quitting? And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm only a month in, I knew this was happening. And they said, all right. And then they drove me back out to the run and I finished the run. And, um, then luckily that was around president's day. So I got to go home and see the kid. But while I was, while I was in the Academy, so then I had three more months to go to the Academy. And while I was there, my wife took the new baby and the two older kids and loaded a U-Haul. And so I, it was I'm kind of a jerk for, I mean, I feel like a jerk for having her do this while I was gone. But when I got home, she was already, I mean, I flew back. I never touched down in Weatherford. I flew into Dallas and went to my new house that my wife had all fixed up. And yeah, she was. That's a good woman. Stellar. That's a good woman. <laughs> Getting everything moved. I was going to say, I bet your neighbors love you. And, and Is this the dude absolutely. who made you while you had a brand new baby pack the house and move while he's off? Oh, man. <laughs> yeah exactly oh i get that a lot i i did i wrote some i can't remember what uh, crime crime scenes crime it's a it's a magazine i can't i'm i can't remember i'm 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 gonna be in trouble for not remembering who i wrote it for but i wrote a little article telling some of these stories and the only comment on the article was what an ass hat <laughs> i thought oh yeah i guess i kind of am i I'm, i didn't mean to be she i didn't like you know, crack a whip, but she's just a, she's just a great, she knows, she knows how to friend. take care of business. Really helped out yeah. over the Which years. Which is, it seems to be common amongst law enforcement. She wives. does. She does. Oh yeah. 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 You have uh, to interesting be. Interesting observation. It just, I, I wanted to ask you about this too. You were in Texas, big grand Texas, you know, nice and hot. What was the fascination about the North slope of Alaska? I mean, there could not be more two entirely different environments. Well, it's interesting you ask that, but it has to do with literature, has to do with books. I read Jack London as a kid. Um, I read a book by an, a Canadian author named Farley Mowat. Um, some people, you know, he, he wrote, he's written a lot of books, kind of environmentalist guy. In fact, I think he was banned from the United States for a while because he threatened to shoot down some F-16s or something over acid rain back in the... 80s but he wrote a book called two against the north about two boys that got stranded in the barren lands of canada and i read it when i was about 11 12 years old i guess about 10 and um just fell in love with the north but my wife's canadian i had to you know marry a canadian girl i love the north so much but um 
I uh, read this when I was quite young, and it was about hunting caribou and native cultures and living off the land. And these boys have to survive for most of a winter. And they they make the they find out that if you stare at the snow for very long and the bright lights, that you're going to go snow blind. That's really hard on your eyes. And so they carve these little snow goggles. These these Inuit snow goggles so they could keep from getting snow blind. And so as a 10 or 11 year old boy, I got a cottonwood root out of her backyard and uh, carved me some snow goggles and warm around. I think my dad thought I was pretty detached. <laughs> you know, something's wrong with this <laughs> Texas kid wearing these snow goggles around. And then it was, I mean, I was weird, but um, I just always had a fascination with the North country. And so um, we moved, we, we did our time in Texas and I love Texas. I love the people but I also love the mountains and the sea. And so we did our time in Texas with the PD and the marshal service. And then I put in for a, a spot in North Idaho in Coeur d'Alene. And we were in Coeur d'Alene for four years, inching our way north and then right along the border there. And then when an opening came up in Alaska, I moved to Anchorage in, in 98. <laughs> So about eight years into my career, seven years so in my career. When you were in Coeur d'Alene, we know that there was some activity. Wasn't it the Weaver? Um, trying to think, Randy Weaver. Some of the stuff tied to the Oklahoma City bombing. There were some uh, compounds in Coeur d'Alene. Were you around during that time? No, that's when I went up there. So what had happened is my wife actually was diagnosed with breast cancer, and her mother, coincidentally, was diagnosed at the same time. And so I put in for a hardship transfer with the Marshal Service and. They were um, originally said, no, we don't do that. But then when they found out what was going on, they they allowed me to hardship transfer. And they put me in Coeur d'Alene because my wife's family was from Calgary, Alberta. And so I just asked to be somewhere close to the border. I didn't have any, you know, I didn't say where I wanted to go. Uh, So first they put me in Montana before I even picked up stakes to move. They said, no, we're going to open office in Coeur d'Alene. Ruby Ridge and all that had happened the year before or 18 months before. And so they wanted to have um, deputies there, you know, put my kids in school, just be be a citizen, you know, show that we're not jackbooted thugs or juggernauts or whatever. And so um, myself and another deputy opened the office there. There, had been, there was a courthouse, but it had been closed for quite some time as far as having deputies living there. And so we were the first deputies there for – I don't know, almost a decade maybe. And uh, so we had still the fallout from everything that went on with the the Ruby Ridge and all that and some of the animosity. Um, in fact, my, my first um, set of Westerns that I wrote are under the pen name Mark Henry, and that was my fictitious ID in, in North Idaho. I was Mark Henry when I had to have a credit card or buy gas or whatever because a lot of places wouldn't sell – you know, when you get in the outlying areas that you couldn't show them a government card, they didn't want the, they didn't want to sell gas to a fed. Wow. So, um, when you first started down in Tejas, down in Texas, were, how does the marshal service work in terms of like, do you start off doing basic stuff? Like, are you already into fugitive investigations or do you do have to do courthouse security and prisoner transport? What's kind of the graduation process is like, you know, with rookies and stuff, you, you know, you'd send them, you have them take the easy reports, you work them into stuff. So how's it work with the marshals? 
So I was very fortunate. Had Since I had law enforcement experience, I got sent to a, a two-person sub-office in Sherman. It was with a deputy there named John Moore, who had been in, in uh, the Dallas office and then moved over to Eastern District of Texas. And so it was just me and John. And John was one of the finest, not just finest, Dep- I mean, finest fugitive hunters, but finest deputies I've ever worked with. Very old school, you know, hat, boots, very former highway patrol, Texas highway patrol. Um, talked like a like an angry Clint Eastwood, yeah. you know. <sighs> That's Deputy Marshall, <laughs> you know, that kind of. I just, I just love <laughs> the guy. Kill you. Um, but he taught me, and you know, I came in with some law enforcement experience, but I was still. I wasn't even 30 years old yet when I started, right right at 30. And so, but but we didn't have, when I started in Sherman, we could put all our prisoners on one eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. And we just didn't have that many prisoners. This was 91. It was pre all the drug, you know, the crack cocaine sentencing guidelines and all that stuff. And so we had court a couple of times a week. Uh, the prisoners were right there in Grayson County, but we worked fugitives and we worked fugitives all the time. In fact, I was, uh, John had to go on assignment because marshals rotate out on a assi- special assignment a couple of times a year. And John had to go out on assignment when I was in the office for maybe a week and he was gone three weeks. And I just got with the locals and we arrested a couple of guys and, you know, we just hit the ground running. They don't, you know, you get a training, kind of a training senior deputy, but if you know what you're doing, um, they kind of, they kind, we always kind of joke. They kind of pour a whole can of whip ass on you when you're in Fletzy and say you, you're deputy United States marshals, go out and do the job when you get home. And so most of us took that to heart, and we were, um, yeah. So I, I worked fuses with John and then over the, it was kind of inverted from what you just asked because we worked a ton of fugitives that first year. And then the sentencing guidelines started to change and arrest started to change. And we went from like 19 prisoners to 170 prisoners. And we were keeping them up in Ardmore, Oklahoma and driving an hour up just to get our prisoners for court in the morning. And then back down, cause we didn't have enough jail space and over in, in uh, Denton, which is, uh, you know, over in Collin County. And, and uh, so we were all on the road all the time and taking prisoners trips up to El Reno, Oklahoma, and which is a, you know, 600 mile or, 400 mile, 500 mile round trip from where we were, where the El Reno's, where the airlift is based. Um, so, and in little sedans, so onesies and twosies. But as a writer, you know, I didn't look at that as a bad thing. I'd much rather be out chasing fugitives. But as a writer, I would, you know, get in the, I had an old, I was the junior deputy. So I had the Shamu, you know, the cage car, um, the big, caprice shamu with a cage in it and we'd put our prisoner one or two or three in the back and head off to el reno and stop and get them a hamburger and a milkshake and they you know they were happy because they got a hamburger and a milkshake and um we were happy because the milkshake put them to sleep and then we could but i would uh chat with them and you know and i and i'd let them know hey you know i'm gonna be a writer someday and tell me about you guys. And they would tell their story. And so I was able to just hours and hours and miles and miles of research. So, but as the day, as the 
crime, I don't, I don't think crime changed, but the way we handled it changed in the border and all of that. Our prisoner list just went through the roof. We had to hire another deputy. We had part-time deputies. We had guards in all the time and it became a lot, a lot of court and then working in fugitives whenever we could. And then when I transferred to Idaho from there after three years, there was no sitting judge. And so it was all fugitives. And then once in a while, when we worked court, it was generally because we were a full day's drive away from Boise where the magistrates were. If we arrested somebody in Coeur d'Alene, we arrested them, got in the court. We tried to arrest them early, early, early in the morning. And then we made the day's drive down Highway 95, which is not even interstate. It's just a windy road through the mountains. Did their initial appearance in Boise, spent the night, turned around and came home. So it was an arrest was a two day beautiful drive through the through the mountains of Idaho, but it was a lot of lot of time driving. Yeah. A friend of mine was uh, retired as a deputy with Ada County and he ended up doing part time court security for the marshals up there. I mean the Sawtooth Mountains is just a beautiful place. Coeur d'Alene, I got this did some business up there, yeah. stayed at the resort there. Just beautiful area. But nothing like government efficiency at work. Take two days, you know, <laughs> to do stuff now they do over Zoom or whatever else. Well, yeah, exactly. We didn't have Zoom, but it was, uh, you know, you have to ha- get them to the nearest magistrate. And that was our nearest magistrate in our district. And it was, uh, I remember we, we had to drive through some pretty remote areas and big farmland down around Grangeville. And it's, you know, we've got a prisoner who's handcuffed and you, you know, we, we have our little stops. We like to vary them so they can go in and go to the bathroom so we can go in the, go to the bathroom. And we had this spot where we, it was down by Grangeville, I think Grangeville, Idaho, where we would kind of get off the main road, take a cut through some of the farmland. It was just, you know, no fences. It was just fields of, I don't even know what they were growing down there, but like it wasn't soybeans, but something like that. Just a big field, maybe hay. And, uh, but there was no houses to be seen, no nothing. And this, this prisoner had been drinking a, like a, 7-Eleven big gulp like a coke all morning and we were about five hours into the drive and so we needed to take a leak so we figured he did too and we pulled off and my partner at that time I've always I'm, I, I had hair and a red you know, at that time I didn't have a red beard just a red mustache but my partner had this humongous big humongous black mustache and he was former special forces and had that look in his eye and so and of course we had our at this time we were driving suburbans with our you know m4s up front and shotguns and lights and all that and big winches on the front so we pulled over and i opened up the door and my partner's standing by the by the door and it's just lonely field and i said walk out in that field and take a leak. And he said, I'm not going anywhere. I said, no, you go, we, you got to go to the bathroom. Just walk away from the, the car and, and you can take a leak. And he thought that we were going to shoot him. Like he, <laughs> he thought that we had taken him out in this onion field yeah, to whack him. Yeah. And uh, I said, no, seriously, it's fine. We have to go to the bathroom. He goes, nope, I can hold it till we get to Boise. So he drank like a 44 ounce big gulp. And wow. held it until for like an eight-hour drive because <laughs> he was afraid we were going to Yeah, and then him. you should have seen the medical bill. And, 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 and I mean, I should say his crime was – his crime that he was accused of was one of those crimes where 
he was worried about getting whacked in jail. I mean, it's like a crime against oh. a child. So he thought, oh, okay, you know, he had a, he, he felt like he might have it coming. And so Jeez. his guilty conscience said, I'm not walking away from this car. You guys are going to kill me. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> hey, well, let's, let's dive into a couple of your cases. Cause we want to leave some time here at the end too, to talk about your books and the stuff that you wrote. But when you reflect back on, I mean, how much of the people that you talked to and the cases that you work ended up in your novels? You know, I think the type of people, I don't, I, I haven't ever based any, I haven't ever based a character off people that we've dealt with, yeah, I've dealt with before, but I've, it's certainly inspired people I've dealt with, uh, um, and a lot of the goofy stuff, and, and good and bad, you know, I mean, I, I had a, I had a guy that I arrested one time as a, a fairly young patrolman and uh, a patrol officer, and they were doing, they were building a new jail. And we had this very old jail with like the old strap iron, like regular yeah. iron bars that swung and all that. Yeah. And riveted and all that. And, um, I, it was a very interesting jail, but it was, it was a kind of a jail where, you know, now there's sight and sound separation for males and females and juveniles and all that. But in this particular jail, it was like a big horseshoe with cells on either side and kind of the kitchen right in the middle. And the men were all on like the, two the the straight and the curve of the horseshoe and then the other flat was the few females so they could hear each other so you can imagine what it was like back there with men and women prisoners and what they and um just the and and they had us work the jail for two weeks when we started just to so we would know what it was like and understand what the county was dealing with and all of that so i I base a lot of if people read my books, they see there's because marshals and really all law enforcement are in custodial situations a lot inside. We know you guys know what a jail smells like. And to me, this jail smelled like chicken fried steak and flatulence. It was just they fed them really good, but just just farts and fry oil, you know, and, and despair. Um, so I, I try to put that kind of stuff in, um, and then the people I arrested this guy, we were there. I was sorry. I got, I digress, but we were, I had to take a dog leg out of the way to get to the jail. And he kind of, I could see him back there kind of squirming in my rear view mirror. And we had, you know, big, big square screens. I could see him very well. It wasn't, if they wanted to spit on us, they could spit on us. It wasn't like now with a plexiglass, but, uh, I could see him squirming. I could see. And then we got kind of further out of the way and I had to kind of make a big U to get, to get all the way back to the jail. And he started to sob in the back and, uh, he's kind of a jerk. He's kind of a punky kid, but he started to sob. And I said, what's, what's the matter with you? And he goes, how come we're not going to the jail? And I said, we are going to the jail. They're doing some work here i gotta take it back he goes oh oh man that's so good because trooper so-and-so arrested me last week and beat the shit out of me and let me go and i said no we're going to jail that's all right (laughs) so this guy was a fighter he was a fighter it was not like somebody just got him and smacked him he probably fought the guy and then the trooper was like you've learned your lesson now now be on your way so little whiny guys like that i've put in the books um you know, people that we had a guy that fought us for 
gosh, you, you guys know how long a fight lasts. Not very long, right? When a fight lasts more than 90 seconds, if somebody says, yeah, I was in a fight, if a fight lasts more than 90 seconds, somebody's probably puking. I mean, it's, it's hard, right? We had a guy that fought us for several minutes, and it was tag team, and it was three of us. And, you know, it's one of those things where, embarrassingly, you try to kick the door and kick the door and kick the door, and it's not <laughs> – opening and then somebody's got the wise idea to go to the sliding door and back and slide it open and walk in and let you in kind of a thing and while all this is going on we can hear this lady inside and she's going help help he's killing me help he's killing me and there was this gigantic guy that all of us had arrested five times before and this was midnight shift so it was me my sergeant and another officer the sergeant's the one. This is why he made the big money. He's the one that walked around and <laughs> opened the sliding door while the other two of us are trying. You know, the I'll turn backwards and do that donkey kick backwards. And, oh, that's not working. And then all of a sudden it opened and we walked in. Well, we walk in and the lady who is being beat up is standing over on the wall smoking a cigarette going, help, help, he's killing me. Help, help. And nothing. She's just standing there trying to get us to come in. Now, he had smacked her several times, but it wasn't going on while we were. You know, there wasn't an imminent need for us to get in there. And the guy that had smacked her was a big guy. He was probably 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, and he was in the kitchen making a sandwich. And so we said, let's just talk. You know, we got a wounded woman over here. Let's just talk. And he went berserk. We fought. And he was just wearing a pair of, like, Speedo briefs. And we went to the ground. And we tried to give him, you know, give me your hands and, you know, guns fell out on the floor. Flashlights were deployed. It was, I mean, and he was smacking us and there was just this scrum and, you know, somebody would back off and kind of get a breath and then join back in. And this guy was just throwing us all around and furniture was breaking. We finally got him handcuffed, took him outside, got him to the car. And then he, and the other officer that was there with me is now, he's retired from the FBI. So it's a future marshal, a future FBI agent, and then the sergeant who ended up staying with a PD. And then he started fighting us again. And so we're on the grass and his, his drawers came off. So we're like fighting this naked dude on the grass and it's cold outside and the neighbor's lights are coming on. And so finally I had the bright idea that we needed help. And so I called in and the day shift was just coming on. So Sun was coming up. It was about six thirty in the morning. They would be going to fall out to to get ready to start their day. We were getting ready to end our day, and I got on the got on the radio. And this sergeant, who's passed away now, former marine, I said, "Sarge, we got we got a problem here. He's on the ground. We can't even in the car. He's he's bloodied. We're you know, and badges are off." And uh, he goes, "How many are there?" And I said, "Well, I listed off. There's three of us." And he goes, look, you catch him, you clean him. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> we were, All right. I guess I don't know how we're going to do this. And um, I think the bad guy heard it and was laughing so loud, he just let us put him in the car. But somehow we got him in the car. And it was one of those guys that when we got him to the jail, we all manhandled him in and opened the cell and then threw him in and shut the door with the handcuffs still on him and just kind of let him calm down a bit till we got a bunch more guys. But um, and the next day I went to the jail for something else. And again, it was that old horseshoe jail. And I was walking back to the back with another prisoner and, uh, he goes, Hey, Hey, were you on that thing last night? And of course he could tell I was, cause I was black and blue. And he goes, man, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I, I don't know what I was thinking. I was just drunk. Wow. I was like, 
Okay. Oh, man. Great. But so I, I base real fights, real goofy things. I don't particularly like to tell war stories that, you know, if you tell a war story where you look cool in it, nobody believes you. But I got plenty where I don't. <laughs> and they're all and true. I try yeah. to put that kind of law. Yeah. I mean, I, that, that uh, highway patrolman who we really looked up to the highway patrol. And again, I was 22, 23 years old. I was sitting at a red light and the highway patrol officer pulled up next to me, a trooper pulled up next to me in one of those pursuit Mustangs, you know, that they went so fast that the antennas are always yeah. bent back oh, from yeah. the wind, you know, they just, they were just <laughs> awesome guys. And, um, I was sitting at a red light and this trooper who I really respected, he pulled up next to me and I know you're just recording sound, but he, he looked over at me and he, and, uh, he gave me a thumbs up. And so I looked over at him and, you know, we're next to each other at a red light. And I looked over at him and I smiled and I thought, oh, he noticed me. I gave him a thumbs up back. And then he gave a slow shake of his head. And then he kind of upped the thumbs up like your lights are on and you're sitting at a red light. And I was like, oh, yeah, sorry. And I've, I'd been on it, you know, stuff like that, that I try to humanize my characters. So, yeah, you can be a badass, but there's going to be some goof ups oh. too. And that makes, yeah, I think it makes the badassery even more real when you might have problems at home or you, you know, put, we had a, we had a guy that got hired on and he didn't realize that your Sam Brown belt went and he was a smart guy. I don't know what was going through his mind, but he didn't realize what the keepers were for. So he spent like 40 minutes <laughs> trying to get the Sam Brown belts through the belt loops of his uniform <laughs> pants. And he came to work the next day with his belt all like gungied up. With the, and, and, you know, like you have to put it through one and then put on your handcuffs and put it through another one and put on your keys and put another one, put on your holster and get it. And we were, we're all looking at him like, I, in fact, I think that same sergeant who um, who uh, said, you ch- catch him, you clean him. I think he took a knife and like touched one of the one of the belt loops and, went, <laughs> and you know, shot all over the place. From I'm, the laughing, tension of the I'm Sam laughing Brown, so hard so. because as a state trooper, that's Kansas Hot Patrol. We had the Sam Browns and, you know, it was like. You had to learn, you know, how to put everything on. It was really nice the way you did that. Um, but yeah, <laughs> no, it's so funny you mentioned. I we, I had a I got a ride home from a guy. He's passed away. Rodney Bachman uh, retired as a captain, passed away here about a year ago. But he gave me a home run ride home one night on a midnight shift. I was really tired. My wife and I had to share a car. She worked at the police department too, so he gave me a ride home. And we had those caprices, the big whales, you know. And so I was. We pulled into the driveway, and I looked over, and said, "Hey, what's you know that guy up there?" And I I kicked the light switch on and it was bright. So he couldn't see the lights really above him. He's like, no, I don't see that. So, well, thanks. I thought, I th- I thought he would figure it out. So here he is driving down the road and all these cars are pulling over and he's goes up for about two miles going, what are all these cars doing until they got to a stoplight? And the same thing. One of the people go look up there. He'd been driving around through downtown through traffic with his lights on just fat, dumb and happy. <laughs> I'm and sure so the next time I asked for a ride, I didn't get one. No, that's that's when you look at the other people and say, I meant to do that. Yeah, I meant to do exactly. that. Exactly. Well, yeah, that's what you do when your lights are on and they look at you. You just speed through the light and go on to some fake call <laughs> Drive. somewhere, right? <laughs> Drive like hell. Hey, um, let's. I want to start progressing into talking about your books, but I want to talk about um, your time on the Marshals. When you look back, what's like one of the most impactful cases or impactful uh, investigations or things that you did? Because when we had Billy Sarukas on, we talked about the DC sniper. Um, 
you know, just, I mean, you guys do some just fantastic work. You've got some great technology. We talked earlier, Blur Dean, when he used to run the TOG, uh, the tactical operations group, some of the stuff you guys do with phones and, I mean, just amazing stuff. When you look back on it, what's like one or two, what's one or two things that just really stick out to you and you think back and you go, I'm glad, maybe it wasn't the biggest case, but you look at it and you go, that one made a difference. I really like that one. You've got, have you got one or two like that? Yeah, sure. You know, it's interesting, and I'm I'm actually in the book I'm working on now. I'm making a a comparison to to you know, one of the things I really liked about the Marshall Service is you could start your day working with all kinds of tech, especially in Alaska and North Idaho, working with all kinds of technical equipment. Back when I was starting, it was pagers and things like that. So now, and that's kind of a cool thing. Is I in the Clancy books, I could talk about pager technology and all that that we don't really use now so it's not sensitive anymore but working with phones and you know and and computers and all kinds of stuff and then two hours later be tracking somebody boots on the ground through bear country up here and and really have to do it the old way Hey players, that is the end of part one. Part two comes out, as always, on Tuesday. In the meantime, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go check out our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot more information there, including our book list. Any book written by our guests will be listed there. In the meantime, go check us out also, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. It's where we put a lot more content you won't hear on our regular podcast. We go into a lot more topics, and folks, it is a lot of fun. So go check us out, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, everybody stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow for part two.